This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Today I have Will Crozier on the line. How's it going, Will? Hey Lane, good. How are you? It's uh, It's been better. This is kind of the second or third time I'm trying to do this podcast. So we're going to try and keep it authentic the first time. But, you know, things don't go well, right? All the time and keep pushing through. Tech, technical glitches. Love them. So, Will, how much simple passive cash flow are you making today? And tell us how you're doing it. Sure. Simple passive income. Um, honestly, truthfully, the answer should be zero. None of what I make right now is simple and none of what I make right now is passive. I'm, I'm working really hard for the money that I'm making. Um, so it's not simple. It's quite complicated. It's not passive because I'm up each morning and I'm, I'm working hard for my income. Fortunately, that income is substantial. I met with my tax guy this morning to do prepays for the end of the year for next year, you know, for this year's taxes. So I'm not facing penalties and it's looking easily clearing over a million this year, have been for a few years. And it's 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 trending up to, towards the multiples of the millions now as I'm closing out some really good transactions as we've been in a real solid market. But, uh, you know, working hard for that, not simple and not passive. So people want to know how do you make millions a year and what how is it that you're doing it? What do you call yourself? So I am a multifamily, that means apartment, deal sponsor. I'm a deal syndicator. I'm a lead investor, all different words for basically the same thing. I go out and I find a deal. I find debt. I find investors. I put them all together and try to make a lot of money in that, uh, in that medium, in that channel. How long have you been in that deal sponsor role? Starting into my sixth year now. So you didn't always do this and kind of getting to your Han Solo moment. At what point did you kind of take the pivot to get you where you are now? Sure. Well, tried hard for the whole university thing, the family path to be an engineer. That didn't really click. Studied hard instead to get my securities licenses to become a stockbroker, the Series 7 and 66 for those familiar with it. Had a kind of a big aha moment when I was out with my bosses and his boss, their bosses, and uh, having dinner and kind of having a, a below-the-radar conversation. It turns out that I was making a lot more money than they were, and that was a bit of a slap in the face to think that I can keep climbing this corporate ladder and uh, working hard each day, each year, and be going down in income as the stress level dropped, and they would prefer to have less stress and less income. So that was my path, and I said, nope, that's not really going to work out for me. Started flipping houses. There's there's good money. Kind of got some education and experience that way. Southern California uh, house flipping market overheated, so I sold everything looked around the country, tried to identify the best place possible and ended up in Dallas, Texas. And it turns out that it was a really good decision to make. Came out here, tried flipping houses and that was a joke. That didn't work. I was flipping you know, $60,000 homes instead of $600,000 homes. So took a big plunge at that point into the multifamily arena. So it was a kind of an example of you kind of getting pushed into a different arena. I mean, if flipping homes were good in Texas, you'd probably be still doing that today, you think? Yeah, you you do what's comfortable, you do what's easy, the passively least resistance. So yeah, exactly. It's through these roadblocks and shut doors that you have to go out and, and find new ones. So what made you pick the Dallas area? I don't know. What year was that again? It was 2006. 
And frankly, I'm just kind of a, a, a stats geek, a numbers geek, and I was just glued to the internet for a few years before that, just sizing up uh, different opportunities, what's growing, what's not, where jobs, where aren't they, what what's the cost of living versus the income, just these kind of simple stats. And I, I got in my car and drove out to Miami, and I drove to Vegas and Phoenix, and pretty much all through the Texas markets and tried to just uh, size them up. And, and eventually I settled on, on uh, Texas and then Dallas was, was my favorite of those, of all of those. Huh. So at the time, I mean that 2006 predates my, my birth into real estate. But if I understand the history books, people were saying that Texas, you know, that's where really nothing happens. I mean, there's just a bunch of land out there. Is that your impression? I guess what, what stats were you looking at that brought you so- to Texas? A large one was the jobs growth. Jobs were coming here at that point. It was early in the cycle, but they were starting to shift attention there. Great business climate, you know, no personal income tax. The cost of living was really attractive to me because I didn't want to be a full-time employee somewhere. I had some savings, so I was like, well, you know, I can get a one-bedroom apartment for 500 bucks a month. I have X dollars in savings, so I can you know, spin my wheels and spin them until I finally find traction in something for quite a long time. Yeah, great place to be unemployed as opposed to somebody in LA. Exactly. So at what point did you burn the boats or let it all happen naturally? Well, I had to really jump in finally full force into multifamily real estate. I couldn't lean back on any of the single family and I couldn't lean back on any of the stockbroker stuff. I had to cut the strings eventually when... A big moment for me was in my life when my son was diagnosed with autism. It was a shocking moment. He was maybe 18 months old and started researching and looking out there and realizing this is going to be a very, very expensive thing for me and the rest of my life. I'm going to have to take bold action right now. Uh, I was willing to sacrifice huge amounts of my income or resources towards trying to get him treatment. And so... I just, uh, it was one of those come to Jesus moments, I suppose, where I got to take bold action. And and that's certainly what I did. So I'm assuming you're in Texas when this happened. How long were you in Texas that you're sort of in free fall trying to figure out what you're doing and then this happened? So I think about five years because I've been here about 10 years. So about five years, I'm trying to gain traction, you know, with with, uh, with business, with the children, looking at, at my options, frankly, and, and finally I caught some of that traffic uh, attraction and got, got rolling with the multifamily. Yeah, for those first five years, kind of looking back, would you say you were one foot in, one foot out, and finally yes. jumped? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's hard to make that full transition, and then some of these things do happen, like with, with my son. And sometimes Frankly, I got here in 2006 and the market wasn't ripe for what I've been doing for the past five years. There was a hardcore reset people have heard about in 2008 where everything changed. And, and you know, a lot of people talk about how that just destroyed a lot of things. And it sure did. But it sure opened a lot of opportunities for other folks who were wait, waiting and ready for them. So if I'm doing the math right, around 2010, this happened and you flipped the switch. Yes, that's correct. Five were just to take a look at the situation. It's quite the Malcolm Gladwell outliers, good set of emerging market. The market's coming back from 2008, and here you are, change your mindset and take things to the next level. Sure, and I, I love that reference. I love that book, and and I kind of think about that myself about 
the batch of folks who kind of hit together at that same time and that same climate. There's a lot of peers that I have here in this market or generally the same kind of age had similar setbacks or challenges in life. And there's a lot of us that kind of rose up together and are in friendly competition, but also are, are good friends at the same time. Yeah, so, well, what's your worst life or business woman? What'd you do after? And what was the lesson learned? Well, worst life and business was pretty much my twenties. And that that's painful to say, because for so many, that's, your best years, that's your prime years, you're, you know, you're healthier, you're young, you're have all this optimism and things. And and that didn't really go that way for me. I had some successes, but there was a lot of personal challenges through family, through, through religion and some other setbacks that I'd had that just kind of reset my whole life. I had, I think, pretty low self-esteem throughout that entire decade of my life not really feeling like going out and networking and connecting with folks, which is the very thing, the singular thing you need to succeed in this world. And I just wasn't having it. I didn't really feel like introducing myself to anybody. And pretty much the first thing anyone asks is, so what do you do? And I didn't have a clear or an answer I felt very proud of at that time. Anyway, I just wanted to kind of do it alone. I was a loner. The next question you have is, so what's the lesson? In, in your 20s, when did you just give a little sense of the time frame? When did you start flipping that first house and kind of getting into the realm of real estate? About halfway through, uh, around 25, I started in it. I had very low resources again and low connections. So it was sort of like this weird thing I was doing. There weren't so many TV shows about it at the time. So it was just kind of this awkward, strange thing that I didn't really know how to explain because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any role models to show me how to do it. So you know, I was starting in it, but that sure wasn't a very bold or I wasn't very proud of necessarily what I was doing at the time. All right. And then the the magic moment happens five years later when you're about 30 and then you get into the multifamily. Yeah, that's correct. Hit traction and uh, kind of felt a bit more proud of it. You know, it's it's fun to talk about. You know, I just closed a $1.3 million deal, you know, at the time that was a huge thing. And it was 77 units, which tells you how much I was paying per door back then. It was astonishing to be involved with it back at that point. But, you know, it was a lot more to hold my head up high, had direction, had, you know, I thought could keep doing this forever. And it, it felt a lot better in my life. And it helped me reach out and, and network and, and build up the, the machine that I've got running right now. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in what I'm starting to go on the path of multifamily syndication. How much money did you start off with once you left the flipping thing to kind of get yourself started in the syndication? Well, personally, I think I had maybe 150000 to my name and it was all cash. I mean, I, everything was in cash at that point. The first deal I went into, I think at 325 which means I, I begged, borrowed and st stole from anywhere I could because the deal to me, I couldn't I couldn't lose money the way I was sizing the deal, the intrinsic value of real estate and land and boards and copper and shingles and plumbing. It's like, how am I going to lose money? So I put every penny I had into the deal. I borrowed and, and did loans from anyone I could. And I pushed 325 into that very first deal. I was supporting myself through that. I had a partner, so I think we were splitting maybe $2,500 a month. So I had, you know, $1,250 a month to live on, which meant 
Each month I'm swiping credit cards like a madman. But I had a lot of faith and a lot of vision of what we were up to on that project and future projects going forward. I'm like, wow, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go all in. I think it's important to know that we hear about apartment syndications or all these land plays as being so profitable, which they are. I mean, they take advantage of the networks and all these economies of scale. But you don't start there. I mean, you need to have some money to your name. I'd say probably at least fifty to $100,000. I mean, the way I explain to people is it's kind of like Major League Baseball. You play around in the minor leagues, A, AA, AAA. But until you get that first $100,000, you're not allowed to come to the major leagues and take a swing at it. I would absolutely agree. And I've disappointed a few folks with this very conversation where they're like, you know, how much can I make? And I'm like, well, how much are you putting in the deal? Well, I don't know, twenty five, fifty thousand. I'm like, well, that's maybe if things go really, really well, you'll make twenty five or fifty thousand dollars. And that sounds so disappointing to them. They're like, well, what about these fees and this and that? I'm like, well, on your first deal, you sure shouldn't be making too much. You have to prove, get a track record and all that. And so put your own money in, make money on your own money. And once you've got that figured out, then, you know, start charging an appropriate fee for the value you're adding to your investors lives. Right. So I cut you off earlier. Well, worst business moment. And what did you learn? I think it's sort of similar to my personal. I just wanted to do everything alone. I was a loner. I didn't want to go to networking meetings. I didn't want to join real estate groups. I tried a few times, but I found them incredibly hokey. I found them so salesy and pitchy and used car salesmen and slick back all this giant, any negative comment or, or stereotype you can think of. That's what I found them to be. So I was just trying to do it alone. And, you know, if you're not if you're not partnering with people with better skills than you, different skills than you, if you're not investing other people's money and taking a piece of it because you know what you're up to, it's just the slow boat. So, I mean, worst thing I, I did was waste my time by trying to do stuff by myself. Your network is your network. Yeah, completely agree. The current two-week experiment and six-month project show folks that, you know, you're working on things to improve just like the rest of them. Two-week and a six-month project are pretty much the same for me right now. I'm uh, working hard with some of my current partners to to create educational content, which will help us in turn create a capital-raising arm through our existing business that we can promote through social media or other platforms such as these podcasts that will educate our target investors on why they need to be putting their money in these type of deals, why it can be lucrative, why it can be less risk than what they're currently involved in, uh, why it's better for their tax situation so that we can go out and syndicate more deals and grow our platform and become more of a, a national presence rather than a regional presence that we are right now. Anything to get people out of the stock market is our support. <laughs> good, good for them. Good for us, right? So what's the plan there? Is this utilizing Facebook ads or any other sure. tool like that? Sure. I mean, that's probably the most powerful and the most direct way to get in front of the folks that uh, you know need to be seeing it. I already have a heck of a investor database just through what we've been doing for the past five to six years. So uh, tapping into that, I have a very good relationship with my investors. I've made them a lot of money. So I feel that they'll also be very generous in, in trying to promote. They've already been generous in saying, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, boss, whomever. Like, look, these guys have gone full circle several times with my money. You should be getting your money in here as well. So just kind of personal testimonial has been, been great for us as well. And that's been growing nationally. 
sure you have a list of at least a thousand investors, but I, I've seen common things in some of these, your peer group, that you guys are always constantly growing that list because you never know when the next thing is coming in, somebody else will surpass you. So I commend you for that. Sure. Growing the list and the quality of the list. I mean, it's easy to add people. It's, it's, it's much better, but more difficult to add folks that can plunge that instead of saying, Hey, can I put 50 grand in your deal? Instead, they're writing a check for a million bucks. And that's where we've been heading lately. And it's a lot easier to get deals done that way. So maybe educate us a little bit on the whole going to advertise. I mean, as I understand it, if you blast out some Facebook ads, now you've put it out to the world. So you can only allow it to get accredited investors, right? Correct. I mean, you can solicit to these other folks, to non-accredited investors, but the requirements that the SEC, even though they've laxed them a lot, it still makes it prohibitive to even entertain that. In my book, you're, you're capped at $2,000 or $5,000, depending upon what kind of thing you're raising. And I just don't really want to go down that path. Uh, I, I, and frankly, you end up limiting these folks to yield deals just the way the SEC wants you to structure them. You're putting somebody that has $10,000 to invest in a deal that's going to make them 6% per year which is just asinine. Those are the folks that need to be doubling their money as quickly as they possibly can, as many times as they can. So long answer just should be for me and a lot of people in my situation need to really purely be focusing on the credit investors to, to bring in their capital to partner up with them. Yeah, what I see a lot of other people doing is kind of flip-flopping between that model and the traditional model. I mean, going out, doing a Facebook blast gets you that list, which you can farm that list on the next deal where you can go after sophisticated and accredited. Sure. That seems like a good strategy. And hey, some of us sophisticated investors will be accredited one day. <laughs> For the longest time, I got to be accredited because you're the deal sponsor. So that lets you be accredited. But I was so far away from in, in the dollars and cents scheme. It was funny. Oh, I don't know if that's how it is today. I think... You, you're still sophisticated. Now, now, now it sounds better to be sophisticated than accredited, but but fortunately I qualify. Fortunately for the balance sheet, I qualify a few different ways, but unfortunately for the tax meeting this morning, it, it gets it gets brutal quickly. <laughs> so, what is your simple passive cash flow number? And imagine you had two times that. Describe your ideal day. What would you be doing? What kind of projects you'd be working on? A hundred grand a month passive, like actual passive, is a good place for me to start. That's kind of what I'm targeting right now. So I guess double in your scenario is 200 grand a month passive. Uh, you're asking what my ideal day, detailed routine project working on. I love working. That makes probably some folks laugh because I'm the guy that's the anti-hustle. Like That makes me cringe to hear people talking about all the hustling and running around that they're doing. And they're just really busy instead of getting anything done. But uh, honestly, I love working. I'm workaholic. I just work very differently. I'm a night owl. I get a lot of uh, chance to have peace and quiet in my mind and I can stay up and just get new concepts, new business ideas, and not be distracted. So something it would be like waking up at 9 a.m., go out, get a little bit of exercise. I love listening to podcasts, audiobooks. Then I usually come back and I sit down on my lazy boy with my laptop, grab some coffee, get some good music playing. And I just dial it in. I, I don't leave the chair for five hours. Uh, just complete quality concentrated work where people can't interrupt me. 
Then I stop working mid-afternoon, go out, grab some lunch, run some errands, and then come back and uh, and uh, charge, uh, change my mind and start working again for another hour or two, cook dinner, go back, meet with friends, find some live music venues, go out and explore some new places, do that every single day, including holidays and weekends. I really protect my work time. I think some people are annoyed by how obsessive I can be with it. They want to work with the you know, the, the game on, or they, they don't mind the distractions. But for me, I really, if I'm writing something or if I'm really studying something, I need to be in the zone and dialed in, uh, something that you and I were just discussing a while back was the ability to travel is phenomenal. I've been doing a lot of traveling internationally, especially to Asia several times per year. And the nice thing about a lot of what I do is it can be done with a computer, with a cell phone, with an internet connection. So, get out there, get out in the world. It inspires, you meet further people, you get new concepts, new ideas. So one of the things I was, I was thinking about was I, I love working in, in nice hotels. I love going up to the executive lounge in a nice hotel in the middle of the night when I'm jet lagged and grab my headphones and, and grab a little snack and something to drink and just crack your knuckles and get ready and get typing and just the inspiration just starts flowing out about how you're going to guide your company, what you're going to do. And it puts you in a situation to work on your business rather than work in your business when you can step away from the day-to-day details and routine. just went to Dubai. It was like a 14-hour flight and I get they, they have Wi-Fi on those things now, but I also just <laughs> got that Chase Sapphire Reserve card and you get access to all the lounges and that was pretty awesome. So I know what you're talking about there. <laughs> Sounds like you're getting addicted just like I am. I mean, the points and the miles on these cards and learning which airplanes have the Wi-Fi and the nicer seats. It's a, it's a bad obsession, but I love it. And I also noticed that, you know, your, your blocking system on your working you know, four hours and you, you come back for another couple hours. Do you do another four or five hour block in the evening or is that just reserved for socializing? No. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll usually do my morning block four or five hours, go out, clear my mind, come back. I'll plug another one or two in the early evening before dinner and then I'll close it up. So, you know, whatever that is, it's five to, to, to seven hours a day, but it's, it's blocked out in different chunks and it keeps me fresh and it makes sure 10 hour days, I think are, are a product of interrupted work. I think it's a product of phone calls that should be two minutes long, but end up being 20 minutes long. And it's a product of in-person, in face-to-face meetings that someone just needs to take you to lunch. And really all they're doing is sacrificing your time. They think they're doing a great favor by paying $10 for your salad, messing up your routine with your health and your nutrition. I sound like the Scrooge of meeting people, but I tell you, like all these things just end up getting in the way of that concentrated hardcore getting stuff done and moving your, you know, the ball down the field and moving your business forward. Right. It's all about that deep worker, that flow state and all the tech people, they block their schedule into two blocks, four hour blocks, and they don't have any meetings in that four hour block. I mean, if there's a meeting, you might as well just go home at the end of the two hours or whatever. I like how you said that. It was so much more eloquent flow space. And what was the other one? The flow state. Flow state. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like adult coloring books, but you're actually getting something productive done. I'll have to adopt those terms. It's a little better than my my tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to describe what it is that I do. So something that you recently 
thought about burning your cash on for time savings or improvement of quality of life? Well, I'm a real estate guy. It's kind of funny. I, li- I live in a one-bedroom apartment right now. I live in a, a one-bedroom apartment, not even in the fanciest part of town. It's not a high-rise or anything like that. It's a, it's a simple garden style right here by the airport, DFW International. My rent's like 900 something a month. I love the renter lifestyle. I love uh, turning the key when I leave to go on a vacation and not thinking about it. Low maintenance, I can just focus on work and, and all of that. But situations have changed. I've got a lot more resources. I've got a lot better, you know, asset base behind me. And I'm talking to professionals and they keep telling me to do different things for tax reasons or to to move it out and to diversify. So something that I might end up doing is finally buying a house and I might buy one of these expensive, ridiculous ones that everyone mocks all the time. But they're telling me here in Texas, we have extremely powerful and generous asset protection laws. So your homestead, if something goes wrong and you get sued or someone wants to do frivolous lawsuits, which I experience all the time and they're able to get through, they can't touch your house. So any any dollar or any penny that I put in my own personal residence, it's blocked out, it's safe so that if everything burnt to the ground, I could either refi my home, get a home equity line of credit or just sell it and have that seed money to go and hit it hard without having to reboot from zero, which is, you know, zero to one million is the brutal time. So seed money to get rolling again. So I might go buy a house next spring. Right, that homestead protection, I know that's offered in Texas and not too many other states. When I thought of that, it sounded like some dude with a gun just kind of protecting his homestead. But it's pretty uh, bulletproof in terms of litigation. It really is. I think the IRS can get through. There's uh, federal judgments, meaning like criminal. I think that can get through, but pretty much nothing else. And it's 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 unlimited in Texas. You could have a billion dollar house technically, and it's all protected. And it kind of goes back to how Texas was formed way back in the day. You know, people were fleeing from other places and just needed to start over. And Texas was welcoming that and set up laws to protect people to come here and kind of start over. Something I talked on podcast 31 was the use of overfunded life insurance as a, another way of hmm. stuffing cash in there hmm. and getting a nice little 5 8% delta on just having the money in there using that infinite banking concept. So that's another idea out there. I'm going to check that out. Episode 31. 31. All right. Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we're continually struggling to gain perfection at. First is art fulfillment, and the second is science of achievement. So if you died tomorrow, what would be your first year science of achievement? My hack would be, as I alluded to earlier, is to kind of just do less hustling and more planning. Make sure you know where you're actually trying to go and learn how to actually get there. I know a lot of people who are obsessed and trying to lose weight. And they just think the way to get there is just by working out. They they love this feeling of working out because it feels good to be active and expending all this energy, sweating and doing all these visible things towards their goal. But the trouble is, is they get hungry after working out and they go and have a 500 calorie smoothie on their way to going to get a healthy 1200 calorie salad. Uh, admittedly, I don't exercise enough, but I know very, very well of every single calorie that's going into my body. You know, my fiance, she uses a weigh scale when preparing my dinner. And my buddy, he Jared, he laughs every time he sees me reaching for measuring cups of all the simplest of life's pleasures. Uh, but, you know, most of the body experts, they say that the results are cooked in the kitchen, not in the gym. It, it seems less direct and fulfilling to be 
packaging meals for the week on a Sunday night instead of uh, yelling out your last set of, of, of reps for the whole world to see. So I'm, I guess my point is do that dieting analogy. There's so much hustling you can do. There's so many things that you can be aggressive and running around like a chicken with a head chopped off, but without clear direction, without clear plan of where you're trying to go and why that's the vehicle is going to get where you're trying to go. It's all just basically wasted energy. What do you say to those who just plan all day long and don't do anything? Clearly, that's a problem as well. <laughs> you you got to get going eventually. I've, I would typically err on the other side, like most of the people who just want to hustle, like let's go do things. So it's not something I've had to think a lot about, about these people who just want to sit around and plan. The planning doesn't really get you anywhere either. So you need equal, equal portions of both. But I would, I would caution, it seems to be the trend in the circles I'm running around that they're hustle, 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 hustle. Sometimes I just want to slap them when they say that, though. You think it's a uh, two-sided coin or is, is there a third side to this? I'm not smart enough to know if there's a third side. Maybe you can enlighten me right now and I can do deep pondering about that in the next few days as well. Just uh, we'll, we'll work on it or some other time. <laughs> okay. What's your secret or hack to the art of fulfillment? How do you contribute back? I think fulfillment, in my opinion, fulfillment all comes from meaningful relationships with the people in our lives. And what I try to do, and it's worked well for me, is that as each year ticks by, I make bigger and better efforts to connect with those who directly enrich my life or when I know I can enrich their life. As I block out my work each day, I get done working and I'm making sure I'm blocking out time for those friends who are close to me, who I benefit from their relationships and they can benefit from my relationships. You know, and some of that looks like mentoring some of the nonprofit work that I'm doing overseas right now. And uh, I enjoy making contributions to, to artists, to musicians, to people who are engaged in passions that I'm also passionate about. I mean, bottom line, connect, reinforce, and build personal and interpersonal relationships that you have. Anything we missed? Any contact information you'd like to, people to get a hold of you? Sure. A great way of getting a hold of me is will at exppg.com. That's will at edwardxraypaulpaulgeorge.com. That URL, exppg, also goes to the website with a little bit of the background of one of my eight companies that I'm currently running. All right. Well, well I'd like to uh, – thanks for – you to come on. It was nice getting to know you here a little better. You know, you coming up through not going to college and doing the flipping thing and finding your way to the multifamily realm. I definitely saw your, your path that you took and it didn't seem like it was it just took a lot of hard work, but you ground your way through it. Very inspiring. Yeah, sure. And thanks for inviting me to do this podcast. I, I love listening to them. I love doing them. I think uh, I, I love engaging and, and conversing with other folks who have the same kind of passion and and thoughts and love money and just a way to improve yourself. So I, I think I know that that's what you're up to. So I appreciate the uh, reaching out to me and giving, giving a shot to, to have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. It's a self-selecting group of people that listen to these things. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Have a good evening, man. Thank you. You too. 
This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.